Hello, I'm Julian Bergini and welcome to the latest in a series of microphilosophy podcasts looking at how different philosophical traditions around the world shape the way we think. They've been produced in conjunction with the Berggrün Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. This is the second podcast of conversations with participants in one of the centre's workshops about the relationship and tensions between harmony and freedom. And our discussion today approaches this issue from the intimate to the global. Joining me are Philip Pettit, LS Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University, Sigrid Thorgesdotter, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iceland, and Leif Wenar, Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. I began by asking Philip Pettit how he understands the concept of freedom. Well, I think of freedom as a, in very much a, a different way from what's often called the neoliberal contemporary way of thinking. The way I think of freedom goes back ultimately to, I think, the Roman tradition, uh, which is also the 17th century English tradition. It's the American tradition of the 18th century as well. And on this way of thinking, to be a free person, and of course, they were restricted in those days to property males, essentially, but to be a free person was to be able to look others in the eye without reason for fear or deference, which is a phrase you find or cognates of that phrase all over the, the literature. It meant essentially that there was an area of action in which you were relatively sovereign in relation to other people, which meant, of course, you had to be protected against them. Uh, you couldn't be protected by any individual because then you'd be in turn subject to that individual. So the idea was that the impersonal law, the rule of law, supported by mores, morals, would actually be the infrastructure that would give you security and enable you to, in phrases they used all the time, like walk tall, look others in the eye, as I say, and not have to fawn or toady. That's the image of freedom that uh, you get in that long tradition, which really goes underground about 1800. I think there are still strong resonances of that way of thinking about freedom in our tradition. And that's what I'm really interested in trying to reconstruct. That's how I think of freedom at its best. One thing that's quite significant about that notion of freedom is um, it's not a kind of freedom that predates the law and the law comes along and restricts our freedom. It's rather that there's, there's a real sense in which law and rule of law makes freedom possible. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, in this way of thinking, and I think it is actually the long Western way of thinking that was supplanted in a way from about 1800 on, uh, but in this way of thinking, law is the precondition of freedom. So you get that theme in Locke, you get the theme in, in Kant, and you get it in, in many, many other thinkers prior to them. What law does is it essentially it does two things. First of all, it finds the range of choice in which you can expect to be able to choose as you wish. And secondly, it defines the sort of protections uh, that you should expect in that range of choice, so that within that range, you really are equal with others. Now, that range came to be called from the 17th century on the range of the fundamental liberties, meaning the basic choices that were thought to be the property of every human being. Actually, in the 17th century, that phrase comes from the levelers who wanted very strongly that women be equal with men in the enjoyment of this sort of freedom. And uh, that actually becomes a theme uh, later on. But that, that notion of freedom has been superseded to a certain extent in the general culture by one which comes from where? E economics? I think economics nowadays is a, is a source of that way of thinking about freedom. But it, as I read the history, 
Uh, you get adumbrations of it, foreshadowing of it in Hobbes in the 1700s, who's a great opponent of what we might call the Republican tradition or the Commonwealthman tradition, as it was often called. But the first person who really is absolutely clear about this new way of thinking about freedom is Jeremy Bentham in the 1770s. And um, William Paley, who's, you know, a great utilitarian with Bentham, he writes a book in 1785 called The Principles of Morals and Legislation. It's a text that everybody knows. And in it, he's absolutely clear. He says the way of thinking about freedom that you find in the masters, he puts it, and among many of the common folk requires that you be exempt from interference. Exempt is the word that he uses. Not just that you happen not to be interfered with, but that you have a certain protection or exemption under the law against interference. You know, he says within two pages of saying that, that this is the more common way of thinking about freedom, he argues that it's too radical for us to stick with. I think he's reckoning it's too radical because he's an egalitarian in at least a weak sense, he wants to extend the constituency of the state's concern to all citizens, in principle at any rate. And of course, if you were to ensure for every citizen that they had this sort of sovereignty or non-subjection, you know, in an area of choice to themselves, protected by the law, you'd have to overthrow current family law, for example, because the position of women would be so very different from what it was. And you'd have to overthrow all master-servant law, employment law of the period. So my reading of it is that Paley and Bentham, they're great reformers, and they're, they're extending the constituency of civic concern. But at the same time, they're diluting the ideal of freedom, which they're holding up as an ideal for everybody, because otherwise it would be, I think, probably too radical. Siglidor Thorgestotter. Well, I, I very much love the idea of freedom as being able to look each other into the eye, because it presupposes some kind of trust. And there was also somebody who mentioned here that there's an ancient root of this word freedom is love. So mm -hmm. love is kind of also this kind of trust. Mm -hmm. But I come from a little bit uh, different background. I will be discussing here um, the issue of uh, love of the sexes. Because in our tradition, we have not been able to see each other eye to eye. Because we have had so many misconceptions about each other. Because religions and philosophies have made frames where they have framed us in. Males are like this, women are like this, putting us on unequal basis where we can't see each other. So it's very much the idea of now how history has put us in this place where we have a distorted view of each other. That I very much welcome this idea of being in a place where we can look each other in the eye. And is the place we find ourselves, is that one which diminishes our freedom, our harmony, both or neither? It certainly has been an obstacle to harmony mm -hmm. because it has created uh, a strife between the sexes, even a war. And um, insofar as the sexes, so sexual difference is more than just men and women, it's also kind of a dualistic value system. You know, women are considered closer to nature, men more more reason or whatever this means that you know it has often been considered like a, for a male to be an environmentalist to be a feminine or something like that so it's kind of distorted so many other things that have to do with more than being men and women it has to do with the value systems we live in there's this philosopher lucy Rigaret, who i quote who says 
the question of sexual difference is the biggest question of our age, not because, you know, it's bigger mm-hmm. than, you know, wars or anything like that or climate change or anything like that, but because of the values associated with this. I mean, look at the wars that are going on now between civilizations, you know, what Huntington was talking about. That has very you know, strong gender implications. Wars about uh, natural resources, very much also gender implications. So this is a huge issue. And of course it obstructs freedom and harmony. It obstructs the freedom of women, for sure. Does it obstruct the freedom of men too? And if so, how? If you're a man raised up in sexism, racism, colonialism, you know, all this package that has been sort of uh, common to cultures, not only Western culture, but to all cultures in some, some way or form, if you are raised up in that type of a scheme of thought, I would think it would restrict you. Mm. If I can just say before Leif comes in, Mary Wollstonecraft, of course, in the 1790s, is sounding a lot of these themes. You know, she's really using that older way of thinking about freedom to argue that, you know, it's destroyed the relations between men and women. And that what we need is that women get incorporated into this, so to speak, culture of freedom, having the same protections, the same rights, the same strengths in relation to men as men have in relation to one another. That's Mm. true. But then again, you know, what is also important that we accept that we are different in many ways. Of course, we're born with the same capacities to reason, but it's possible that we reason about different things or that we have different interests because we have different experiences. And I'm not saying these are essentialistic differences. No, No, but they are Mm. differences and they're very fertile and they're a great opportunity to bring in more harmony in the sense of having more diversity. Leif Winner. So, Philip, when you introduced your idea of freedom, it sounded very much like a political ideal. But then Sigurd Dorden not only introduced the relation between the sexes, but words like love and trust. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you think that the value of freedom as you understand it has applicability within more intimate relationships as well as but within the political sphere. Well, I, I think it's actually a precondition of love and friendship. I mean, after all, when people... Uh, give themselves to one another in love or in friendship, they have to do it out of a position of strength. You know, it's the old master-servant or master-slave sort of dialectic. You know, if someone is in a position of real dependence, you know, they absolutely need this relationship, then they don't give the gift of love or friendship in the same way. It's not credible as a gift, you know, it's more like a requirement. So I think of freedom as really uh, continuous with love and friendship but a precondition of it. Yeah, you know, the sort of freedom that involves this independence is really a precondition of reaching out to another and putting yourself in their hands, which is what you do, in the sense of you're really at their mercy to a good extent, I mean, with a friend or with a close um, uh, partner. Well, we really are ranging here from the personal to the political. But Leif, I mean, you, you look at this from literally the global perspective, the idea of you know, harmony on the global scale. And, and, and you, you believe that actually the evidence is quite clear that however you want to sort of measure global harmony, if you like, it's been on the up in last century. Do we live in a more harmonious world than we did 200 years ago? It's hard even to consider the thought, isn't it? Everything we see on the news is bloodshed, strife cruelty, religious extremism. It's hard to imagine that we could even make the case seriously that in any way the world is more harmonious 
than it was before. But in the big picture, there are some indicators, at least, that we might entertain the proposition, at least, especially since World War II. Something seems to be happening to our species that we don't talk about so much because the big picture is occluded by the small screens we look at all day. In the big picture, not only is severe poverty way down, not only is democracy swept much of the earth, but actually this is probably the most peaceful time in recorded human history. And I know that's surprising because our screens are full of war, but every statistic we look at, whether it's wars between states, battle deaths, civilian casualties, even numbers of deaths in, in genocides, everything is getting better when it comes to peace. So there's two ways of looking at the world. One is the world is still a thoroughly awful place compared to what it should be. No decent person would deny that. But it's a much better place compared to what it was. The thing about the, the evidence and people's resistance to it is very interesting. You said that we all know people who cannot accept good news under any description. You say you know, from 1976 to 2014, no state expanded its international borders by force. What's behind this then? Because, I mean, it's one thing to point it out. It's, it's another thing to try and explain it. And uh, th there is something important here about power that we need to understand if we're going to understand this progression and presumably how to maintain it. Because it's not inevitably being maintained, right? That's right. And one of the reasons we need to understand the big picture of progress insofar as there has been is to understand how it happens so we can build on it more and get rid of more of the disasters that keep afflicting us, which are undeniably there. There's something about the post-war period and the norms, uh, the rules that we've been living by, which has made us more cooperative, more tolerant, more peaceful. Part of it is certainly that we've gotten richer and as we get richer, there's less opportunity for fighting over resources that may change in the near future if we uh, mess up our planet too much. But part of it is just after long, long experience, humanity has found that there's certain kinds of rules which take the most divisive issues off the agenda. So here, for example, one rule we almost never talk about, which has done a lot to make the world more peaceful, is... Countries can no longer capture territory by force, like you said. Yeah, there's no instance of one UN state even trying to take over all the territory of another UN state, except for, in 1990, Saddam tried to take over all of Kuwait, and that was quickly reversed by an international coalition. Taking the issue of state borders off the agenda by saying, look, the map is now drawn in pen, that is a salient solution that even humanity, which is a pretty dim collective agent at its worst, even humanity can enforce that rule. All right, guys, the borders are set now. You don't get to take more territory militarily. Mm -hmm. Just a simple rule like that has done a lot for increasing the peace. Now, I like your summary of this. You say there are the three phases, really. There's a time of no rules, then power rules, as it were. And then it's counter-power rules, getting the right counter-power rules, which are actually restrictions. So again, if you think about freedom as being absence of fetters, it's actually constraints on power which make the kind of freedom to live our lives possible. Um, do, you, do you share the, op the optimistic, positive view that Leif has set out here? We should always be optimistic. 
But I think, uh, you know, he was talking about borders. If you want to invade the country now, you don't need to go and trespass the borders. You do something with the banks and the finances. <laughs> so there are other ways of gaining control over countries now through finances, through resources. We're just de- dealing with different challenges. And I think it's uh, very laudable and, 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 and lovely that, you know, some things are getting better, but we always get new problems. They're and not quite, it's not quite as deadly, though, are they? Kind of <laughs> so I think that's a key point. Um, Philip? Well, I, I think it, what is certainly true in history is that whenever borders are in dispute, to the extent to which they're sort of uncertain, there's more war. And I think that late's dead right, insofar as borders have come to be, they're not particularly good borders. We, ideally, they probably would be drawn in very different places from where they're actually drawn in much of the world. But insofar as they're a matter of presupposition, that really is a great thing in the sense of reducing the prospects of war. And I think that Sigurdur is dead right, and Leif would not deny it, that there are all sorts of other problems, of course, apart from the, this progress we've made in reducing the prospect of war. There are massive problems that come on stream with the development of new banking practices, new corporate practices, and so on. And I think there's also a problem in our conceptualization of our very ideals. So, for example, um, you know, democracy is certainly by far more popular than it was 50 years ago or whatever. But then what you're seeing now, it seems to me, in many of these democracies is it peeling away. I mean, so, for example, it seems to become almost accepted wisdom in many countries that It's fine in democratic terms that you, for example, reduce the power of the courts, that you compromise the power of any independent agencies, that you uh, reduce the status of NGOs, you know, or that you you interfere with the freedom of the press, so long as there are elections, you Mm -hmm. know, so Putin, Erdogan in Turkey and now in Hungary and Poland, I see you, you see an erosion of these aspects of democracy that seem to me to be absolutely crucial. It's a bad mistake to think that democracy is just about elections. It's about much more than that. It's about the people controlling the state, not just the particular government in power at a time. And that requires a whole apparatus besides elections, such as independent bodies, be it electoral commissions or the courts, obviously, but also NGOs, very important, freedom of the press, very important. So I think as, you know, we are in a better place than we were 50 years ago. But we still have uh, have real problems, and of course, there's still the nuclear uh, problem that we've that so many countries are now armed with these uh, planet destroying weapons. You know, we we sort of forgotten that, but that's really still the great threat hanging over us. I think. So just to let well, a little bit more optimism back in, because <laughs> I, I I certainly agree with this. But the optimistic thesis is so striking. Let me just give people one more grasp at it. So the worst social condition is chaos, right? If you're living in Mad Max world in Iraq, then ISIS actually might be a better option. Power can be preferable to chaos. And 300 years ago, the world's rules internationally were almost entirely just saying might makes right. Power is legitimate. Whatever power can do, that is what is legitimate to do. Back then, international law was favorable, say, to the slave trade. Whoever could keep hold of a human being by force could sell that human being. 
International law was favorable to colonialism. Whoever could control a foreign population got to rule that population. International law said you could conquer territory uh, militarily. And even within countries, international law was that a sovereign could do almost anything he wanted to the people of the country. So whoever had the most power could install a racist apartheid government or engage in ethnic cleansing, even genocide. All of those things were legal under international law because essentially the law was might makes right. But look, think about the moral milestones that you would teach to your children, right? The slave trade is now illegal. Colonialism is now illegal. Territorial conquest, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide, all of those things are now violations of international law. And we've replaced those laws with new laws requiring respect for individual human rights and the self-determination of peoples. Now, it's obviously true that just because we've gotten better laws doesn't mean we've magically abolished power, but at least we're on the right side of our history and our thinking about these things. In the old days, law was just the legitimation of practices of violence. But now we've got better rules and we no longer say that there is anyone who is a slave owner or an apartheid governor, right? Those identities have now been exploded. You can't be a decent person and be like that anymore. And that's progress. I'm all for the optimism. And this is not a charge against slave of all people, but uh, it's very important we're not complacent about going forward. And I think that we have achieved democracy in lots of parts of the world, but it's terribly, terribly important that uh, we develop an understanding of democracy and an understanding of democracy spreads under which it's unthinkable. It should be unthinkable what Erdogan has attempted, or Putin, for that matter, or Hungary, or Poland most recently. Uh, But that really requires that political thinkers and theorists and philosophers should be part of the public conversation, you know, articulating these ideals, giving them metaphorical, you know, imagic sort of expression that will catch hold. I think of democracy, of course, as an aspect of freedom. So that's why I think of it's being so important that we don't let freedom go with the neoliberals, whereby it needs a sort of free for all, you know, that we really recapture this values in this family and put them at the center of our social and cultural lives. You're talking about Erdogan. He's now talking about, you know, women and, you know, really curbing the uh, or limiting the freedom of women and talking about Putin and what's happening in the States with Trump, you know, authoritarian masculine figures. This has something to do with the crisis of masculinity, masculinities in different parts of the world. I think about in in, in Russia, where Putin comes, a very authoritarian masculine figure or, you know, presenting himself as such. During the Soviet era, men were in a certain sense losers. Women progressed immensely, took on jobs, uh, educated themselves, had the double uh, burden of household and jobs. I mean, they did not maybe have the political power during the Soviet times, but they became very powerful in what they were doing, many of them. Men, a lot of them sort of lost ground, became alcoholics, we're all workers, so there's a, a tremendous kind of um, sense of them being losers. 70 years of that. Thinking about the parallels between Putin as kind of, you know, representing a strong male figure as something maybe for the male psyche in former mm-hmm. Soviet Union, something uh, appealing. Say maybe for Trump in the States now. Also, I see that for the last 30, 40 years, men are 
imprisoned. There's just drugs. Men lose ground in, in the families, in the workplace. They're unemployed. Uh, they lose a great sense what gives them dignity as men. And then comes somebody like Trump. He's a self-made man. He has families, <laughs> you know, serial <laughs> kind of. And, and this is something that is appealing to men in this historical situation. And this has something to do with a crisis of masculinity mm-hmm. that I feel is not really addressed adequately. Mm-hmm. That's extremely interesting. So in that sense, you know, gender, gender politics really is important for geopolitics in, in that sense. Well, look, thank you yeah. all very much indeed. Thank very you. interesting discussion. Thank you. There'll be more global perspectives on freedom and harmony and also on hierarchy and equality in upcoming podcasts. And there have been a couple already produced. So to keep up to date, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Berggrün Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.berggrün.org. And so, until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>